Welcome to The Security Show. I'm your host, Alona Stern, and I am so excited to have our guest today, Rafael Marty, Senior Vice President of Security Products at ConnectWise. Rafi has over 20 years experience in cybersecurity and is one of the industry's most respected authorities on security data analytics, big data, and visualization. Prior to joining ConnectWise, Rafi was the head of XLabs, Forcepoint's Research and Security Intelligence Department. He is also the author of Applied Security Visualization and is a frequent speaker at global academic and industry events. Welcome to the Security Show, Rafi. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So first off, congratulations on your recent career move and position at ConnectWise. Can you, you just share what ConnectWise does and describe what your day-to-day looks like? Yeah, sure. So we are a, we call it a technology service provider platform. Think of MSPs, managed security providers. They're part of the TSP space. These are basically companies that are catering IT services to smaller organizations, say so bakeries here in Austin, where I live. They need some kind of um, IT services and they can't really do it themselves, right? These bakeries, they don't, they're not IT staff. So they go to an MSP, which then gives them all the capabilities they need from Wi-Fi access to internet to, to security also. And so we're building a platform or we have a platform for these MSPs to run their business. So everything from coding and billing to ticketing, when, when something goes wrong in a bakery, right? They can send in a ticket. There is remote management where they can, instead of having to drive to the bakery and every single one, they can remote manage into the systems and, and control them that way. And then we have all the security products that we offer these MSPs to secure their customers. My role at the company is I, I'm responsible for our security product line. So that means all of the different products we build ourselves. So what, what are the roadmaps for the products? What's the product lineup, right? Like what are the different products we even offer to these MSPs. And there's a lot of exploration going on. Well, what do they really need, right? It's not the same as in enterprise security. They have slightly different needs. And that, that means we're, we're not just, we don't just have our own products that we're building, but we also have an ecosystem of third-party products that we resell and that we offer to our MSPs to have a complete solution. That's kind of my responsibilities at the company. Sounds like a big change from kind of working in the in the corporate space to these really some of them mom and pop, uh, some of them sort of SMBs, and a much different knowledge of security in general. Yeah, it's interesting. It, there's definitely parallels to or, or similarities to to my or a lot of similarities to my jobs before, but it's a little bit of a different angle and a little bit of a different priority, right? It, it's, it's much more important to have a very simple and easy to use product than it is to detect the absolute latest crazy way that attackers are getting into, into large organizations, right? These, the, the threat landscape is slightly different, although we're, we're noticing more and more similarities, which is very interesting as well. Yeah, and I think that's a topic that we'll get to perhaps a little bit later around human factors and user experience and security and sort of balancing if people don't know how to use 
the products, you're not really necessarily protecting yourselves <laughs> as oh well boy, as yes. uh, you might think. <laughs> Cybersecurity is in many ways a very reactive field, right? We can only protect what we know already to be a threat. But you're exploring how to take a more proactive approach, really looking at how to leverage data and AI. I'd love to have you share what you've discovered until now. And, you know, what are some of the main impediments that's stopping the shift in the industry in this direction? Yeah, it's interesting. My whole career, I was, I've always worked in the intersection of data analytics and security. And for, for 20 years, like 20 years ago, when, when we worked on data, we didn't call it big data, right? It was, it was just, it was a lot of data and we didn't call it AI. It was math. But the interesting thing is, well, not that much has really changed. We have different algorithms today. We have different or much, much better capabilities to process large amounts of data at a, at a pretty cheap cost. But fundamentally, we're still struggling with the same problems, which really comes down to understanding the data that we're collecting and to collect the right data that actually tells us what we really need to know, right? And so... I, I've been very fortunate that I've been working with a number of people and a number of organizations where we try to figure out how do we get ahead of this game, right? Like if you look at security, we've spent trillions of dollars on securing systems. And where are we today? Well, we're still vulnerable everywhere. So how do you get ahead of that? Well, you have to start understanding how are systems normally used by the users and then understand when there's a deviation. Well, that is really hard, right? Um, you had Margaret on the show a couple of weeks ago. Margaret worked with me on, on figuring out how we can characterize some of this behavior and then find these deviations, right? With her background in psychology, I think that was one of the things we realized is like, you have to really understand what people are doing and why they're doing it because people's behaviors are very radical. Like, like they... You wake up and, and suddenly you don't have the same routine anymore because you're following a new, I don't know, the, the latest health approach where you get up earlier and you want to get more done in the morning, right? And, and you, might, you make less decisions in the morning because of decision fatigue during the day or whatever the fat is that, that you're following, right? Suddenly your behavior changes and that starts looking to the system like, this is not normal anymore. Is there something bad going on? And and how do you differentiate that from really malicious behavior that's happening, right? So the whole research is still very much in the, in, the, in the early stages. We're still even at the stage of like, what's the right data to collect? And then what's the right inferences to make from there that um, help you decide whether something as bad is really going on? I think this is, you know, an area that... Um... Is, is fascinating. And I think one that is really not discussed, which is exactly that around observing people's actual behaviors and thinking about how to build that into our security systems. So what do you think comes next after anomaly detection? Is it predictive pattern detection? Are there already things that are being implemented today? I think we need to go back to the basics even, right? I'm not sure if we have to take a next step. I think we have to improve the current steps. Anomaly detection means a lot of things. And, and, and in the end, it's questionable how good we really are at doing that, right? We have 
We have tried to do anomaly detection on network traffic for 25 years now, right? If you go back to some proceedings from a conference like RAID, Recent Advances in Intrusion Detection, for example, has been around since, I believe, 1996 or 97. And we've been looking at network traffic and behaviors of systems and, and try to find anomalies in there. We really haven't made that much progress today to really tell when a system is doing something it shouldn't be doing. As I mentioned the, the example earlier, right? Humans change behavior. With that, you see the systems change behavior because we are interacting with these systems, right? So I think we need to go back and even relook at the anomaly detection systems. And a big mistake that I'm seeing is that with the growth of artificial intelligence, and I even hate that term, right? Because it's really not nothing intelligence yet, but really machine learning underneath, we, we've started equating most things with supervised machine learning, right? Which is really, you, you take a large amount of data and you try to teach the system in the simplest case, what's good and what bad, what's bad, right? To do that, you need labeled data, meaning you need training data where you already know the ground truth. Like for this set of data, this is actually bad. This set of data, it's good. And so many systems are trying to rely on these kinds of algorithms, but with very bad data or not complete data or biased data. And we need to go back and, and rethink or, re, or change our assumption that we can solve everything with, with, with supervised machine learning. We can't. We'll always have some kind of bias that we need to correct for. And so we need to look at other methods. And people have, especially in security, we have neglected that. We're, we're losing a little bit of unsupervised learning for some problems. But even going back and taking completely different approaches, and I, I've been saying for a very long time, we, we should not necessarily build systems that have all the answers, right? It's not like, here's a bunch of data and it tells you, oh, this is bad and this is good, but build systems where we make the human analyst more efficient, right? Where the, the analyst can interact with the system better and easier and look at terabytes of data and the system says, look, here is the 10 megabytes that are interesting that you should look at. And then guide them through and then learn from how the, the, the analyst, the expert interacts and let them put their knowledge into the system and learn from that, right? And so we, we haven't really thought too much about the system. We keep thinking that we're just building systems that solve problems, right? And that's not always the right approach, especially when it comes to, to more complex security problems, right? And I think that's, that's where we have to change our approach a little bit and not just try to go to yet the next thing. But it's, it's this chicken and egg problem because companies take security products. If you suddenly go back as a vendor and say, oh, we're building these systems that really take humans into account and you can enable your security analysts, people are going to be like, what? There's this other product over there that's using this new algorithm that just solved all the problems, right? So you see the predicament we're in here. Yeah. It's really about how can we empower your frontline security people and create this continuous feedback loop? And in addition, how do we educate the market around this new approach as well? It sounds like a radical way of thinking about this, but I am very much the right way, if you, if you ask me. Yeah. The question also becomes twofold. It's like, do we really want companies to take care of their own security, which a lot of enterprises do, right? 
but we have talent shortage, systems get more and more complex. How do we keep even the smart security people educated on all these new technologies, right? Like suddenly you have to understand IPv6 and the intricacies of that to protect your network, right? And then you have SD-WAN coming along or suddenly all, all you knew about routing suddenly is like, oh my God, this is yet another layer you have to understand, right? So should we in some way take it away from the enterprise security themselves and, and offer more managed services where you have super trained people, maybe even experts in, in, in certain areas that collaborate on securing your network. But how do you make that work, right? Like what's the right SLAs? What's the right interaction with the company? And there's a million problems there. And then the other piece that I've been thinking about quite a bit is like, well, we also try to be smarter than we should be in, from a security perspective. I often give the example that if you look at a server and someone logs into that server and it seems like it has never happened before, right? We have this algorithm that says, I can detect any anomalous login behavior. Now that is being flagged. It goes to the security operations center. An analyst looks at this and sees, oh, there's this login from this person to this server at a certain time of the day. And they're like, hmm, I don't know if this is really bad. But what they're going to do is they're going to ask the person that the username belongs to, and maybe the person that owns is the owner of the server, whether they think this is normal or not. And they have to explain, why did you log into that system? And then when the user says, no, that was not me, I must have, my username must have been compromised, then they start investigating, right? But now you just spend so many cycles on trying to get an analyst looking at this thing. Why don't we have a system that when that login happened, it sends an email to me and says, hey, your username just logged in here. Was that you? Was that intended? Yes, that was me. It's fine. You send an email to the owner of the system. Hey, Rafi just logged in. Is that cool? And they can say no. And then security can go and, 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 and have an investigation. Right? So pushing some of these decisions to the user is fine. I love that. It's really taking from the world of consumer software, right? Mm -hmm. When I log into Twitter from a new location or computer, it does that for me already. Yeah. And so really this question of what can we learn from other models and, and really start to apply it to security. Yeah. Super interesting. Yeah. I want to segue into, I think this conversation is moving us towards data visualization, because I think, you know, that's also one piece of, of this conversation. And in one of your recent blog posts, you shared a video, you know, talking about how to extract value from security data. And you really reviewed the history of log management. We'll, we'll put it in the show notes because it was just a fascinating video. And, and you highlighted the challenges we face today around sort of Again, what was before just a lot of data, now now branded yeah, as big yeah. data, and talking about some of the trends in the security analytics space. And, and one of the points you make is that we're on the path towards moving everything to the cloud, and we need to focus on creating the right processes to ensure privacy. How can we better utilize data visualization for security? Yeah, it's a great question. It's it's interesting. I wrote a book about visualizing security data that came out in 2008. I'm really dating myself here, right? But it's interesting. I think a lot of what I wrote about is still valid today. And unfortunately, there hasn't really been that much progress since then. 
to take a step back, when I look at data visualization, I look at two areas. There is data presentation or communication with data, and then there's data exploration. On the first side on data presentation, it's all about reports and dashboards, right? Where you have data, the system shows you what the data is about and helps us ideally make decisions and take an action. And the data exploration piece is, well, I give you a large amount of data, I give you some data set, and I let you understand, or I want you to understand what the data set is about, right? That you really understand whatever questions you have, be that finance data or security data, it doesn't matter. You wanna dig in and understand this data. Why does something happen? On the, on the data presentation side, with dashboards and so on, we've made some progress. I think we are seeing better dashboards and systems that help us drill into the data. I think companies like a Tableau on the BI side or a Click or, or whatever those products are, even, even Splunk I would throw into that, in that bucket, have done a great job of, of helping us present the data as long as we know what we want to pull out of the data and show. It's generally left to the user as an exercise to figure out, well, what, is the, what are the right metrics and what are the right visualizations to use to communicate these things, right? And they're still in security. We have, gosh, for 15 years or something, we have been discussing security metrics. What are the right metrics to, to put on a, on, a, on a dashboard for security, right? And it's still, it's a hard problem to solve what's really relevant. We're, I think we've gotten much, much better. We, we, we finally, we have some good products and some good visualizations of, of that kind of that kind to understand our environments better. And there's more in quote standards that people are using to look at a network or your asset inventory and things like that. But then on the data exploration side, we're really nowhere, right? Like, gosh, I'm, I'm dealing with finance data um, quite a bit recently at, at ConnectWise where I'm trying to understand the business, right? Like looking at, all the different things from the buildings and revenue and retention rates and things like that. And you can drill into the data and the data shows you something, but it's like, well, is that really true that we just had a surge in, in say retention rates for, for our, our customers? And then you're like, huh? And then you go into the raw data and then you realize, well, hmm, interesting. This data comes from here, that's coming from there. And it's, still, it's, it's very hard to still get to the root cause of what is really happening and can I trust the data also, right? So what's that whole data pipeline? So I think the, the data exploration side, even leaving alone the data pipeline, right? I think there's a whole bunch of stuff that needs to be done to help us in the data pipeline. There's some companies like, like a Talent, for example, that does a lot of ELT, uh, ETL and so on. But even on the visualization side, a system that allows you to very easily drill into the data, it's fast, it gives you all kinds of suggestions on what about this view, would this help you and, and learns from you. We're nowhere. And I think there's still a big opportunity there. But from a company or a product perspective, it's challenging too, because to make that work for financially for, the, for like building a company around it is, is actually harder than one would think. It's not like you just build a product and everybody will buy it. But people are like, well, why would I visualize the data and let someone explore it if I can just build an automatic rule or a system that pulls the right data to, from the get-go? And it, it, showing the value of this explorational platform is not going to be easy, I think. 
I have a follow-up question to that, which is, could something be built that is applicable to multiple industries or are the metrics for a health tech, a digital health company versus um, a finance company, are their security metrics going to look different? I think a generic platform would probably be something that could be built around this. But I think you're hitting on a very important point, which is in the end, there's always domain knowledge you need, right? Like start with finance. You need to understand what a retention rate is based on, right? Like how, and, and there's different ways to define it, right? So domain knowledge is important, but, but that's another aspect where a product could actually help you and teach you and explain it to you, right? And gather rather than someone deciding in the data pipeline, well, this is how this metric is computed. The system actually knows that and can help you when you're starting to drill in and say, hang on a second, this is really how this metric is defined. Here's where you should be looking. Don't go and look at the number of customers, but look at the, the dollar amount, for example, in, in finance, right? And so coming back to what we talked about a little earlier, right? Like the expert knowledge needs to be encoded into these systems and it needs to be done in a way that the knowledge can be expanded or changed depending on the, the use case and the company potentially even. So let's shift now towards privacy and how thoughts around privacy really affect the systems that we're building with data. So there's been a lot of talk about data accessibility and what's the appropriate levels for safety and security. And we have this catch-22 because on the one hand, the more data about you, the better the system that I can build to protect you from security breaches but then you're losing your privacy. And so there's, there's almost an ethical question here, which is how much data should be accessible, to whom, at what level, as, how do we balance that as we're trying to push some of these security, really kind of push that down kind of closer to maybe the security analysts. And, you know, I'm also just, as I'm talking this out with you, wondering, you know, maybe there's a sort of something to look to the consumer space and how things are done there and and this sort of mm -hmm. feedback from the actual user yeah. uh, in terms of the user experience. What do you think is, is the best way to approach this? Just a small question here. <laughs> I'm glad you're bringing up this topic, right? Because I, I think we're, we're, we either have the privacy conversations, you go to a privacy conference, right? Or you have the data conversation, whatever it is, the security conversation in we need to bring those conversations together. They're one and the same. You're, you're spot on, right? Like, like what are, there are ethical questions here. Like what is the right amount of data that I can collect? I mean, imagine you're working from home, right? Most of us are working from home day in, day out. Imagine that our webcam information, the video would be stored somewhere. Gosh, like all day long, right? Like not even just when I actually turn it on, but it just would be on all the time because... I don't know. They want to verify how long you really worked and were productive, right? Or you were just goofing around and whatever. I think the, the only approach, and it's, this is very personal opinion, is that we, like, whatever data is collected can be abused, right? Like, if I collect cell phone records, if I collect text messages, if I collect email messages, if they're collected somewhere, they can be looked at by someone be that the system administrator that has root access to the data 
or a developer that has access to the data, whatever it is, right? Or the hacker that gets into the system that gets to the data without us even thinking that there is an access path to it. We see these breaches all the time, right? That, that's why we have these breach disclosures for everything. Now, if that's the case, if any data collected can be abused, well, how do we prevent the data to be collected? Well, the first question, the answer is, well, if we don't have the data, we can't do our, we can't build our use cases. True. Okay. We have to collect the data. Well, can we maybe collect the data differently? I think that's where the key is. We have to collect the data in an anonymous way to start with. So when the data comes in, instead of like looking at my phone record, instead of having phone numbers in the clear and the way they are when I, when I actually use them, you anonymize them right away. When you ingest the data, you store them pseudonymized. So you basically just replace the phone numbers with phone number one, literally that, the name phone number one and phone number two, right? You store that. If someone goes and looks at that stuff, they will get two people messaged with each other. And then sometimes you need to be able to go back to like, oh, well, who was actually sending that? Because it's a security problem, right? There might be something discriminating in that message that you need to go and figure out who sent it. Well, you can store that in a very secure audited uh, vault where only certain people have access to, the, to reverse that, that mapping, right? So they can low, oh, phone number one was Rafi. But then this gets highly audited. Every access to that, there's a record. This person accessed it. And ideally, they have to make a comment why, right? So, so you, you built this system that's really built for that. Now, people will challenge this approach because, well, okay, I just anonymized the phone numbers. What about the text itself? That's when it gets really complicated, right? Like the messages. Well, there's probably information in there that says, hey, Rafi, how are you? Well, guess what? Now I just know that this phone number is Rafi, right? So that's where the research lies and figuring out, well, how can we, there's, there's a bunch of natural language processing we can do and figure out, well, what are the objects in here? What are names? We anonymize those, right? Uh, and so on. And, and some things are easy, like, like a firewall log logs are pretty simple, in quotes, <laughs> to anonymize that way. Email messages, incredibly hard. You have to really understand what the email is about, what are names in here, what are company names, what, what other things do you want to anonymize in there? And that's, I think, where we're making some progress. I think there's, there's some really good academic work. There's some really good work by, by some startups and, and by also larger companies that are starting to dig into these things with entity recognition and then pseudonymizing those things. And, but I think, again, coming back to what I said in the beginning, whatever data is collected can be abused. And, and I think we have to live with that paradigm and build our systems around that approach, right? And I don't think we're going to get to 100% perfect privacy, but if we even get to 95 or 90%, I think we're, we're, we're looking much better, right? Rather than just always collecting everything, collected, anonymized, right? But we have to do that by design and when you, when you start thinking about building a product. So a topic that's come up in recent conversations on, on uh, the podcast has, has really been around processes. Yourself also wrote a blog post talking about how security needs to be deeply embedded into the business processes. I'd love to have you share some of the best practice examples of how you've seen this done, because it sounds like this is, you know, this is the only way forward, essentially. Yeah, yeah. 
I look, there's incredibly, there, there's a number of movements in this whole space of security by design, security built in, right? Like there's a security, the security development life cycle, right? SDLC. There's a lot of people that write about it, right? If you, if you just, if you Google for SDLC or sec DevOps, right? Where really you're, you're building security in from the start, right? And that is just, again, it's like privacy, right? You have to build security in from the beginning, bolting it on afterwards or having a development group, an engineering group build code and then security comes and secures it. That is, that is the past. That is not how we, like, it's just, it's not efficient. It's, it's not going to be secure because now if you do it that way and you have it split, well, how does the security team know what the, the product actually should be doing, right? Because you have to, you have to merge those things together, which means that developers have to understand how to build security in and systems and, and programming languages and, and libraries that are being used need to be made secure from the starting point, right? That when you use them, that there's certain things you have to do to make sure that they are secure. And then you have to set up your, your, the right development pipelines, right? Like from like the whole CI, CD, and when you do QA processes in there, you have your security built in, you do the, you do black box testing, you do code reviews, you do like all these different things. There's a lot of people out there that are much better qualified to talk about this than I am. One other movement that you can look up is shift left that really talks about how do you move security left, right? Like, like into the beginning of things, in the, into the code when you start coding. And I think that is really important that every developer understands some of what that means and how that works and, and builds it into their own daily job to do that, right? And, and then have the systems and processes around that to, to validate it. So actually, that was one of the questions that we had, which was really kind of this left of boom, right? This military idiom, right? It refers essentially to disrupting insurgent cells before they can build and plant bombs. I think you've articulated really well how we can think about that in cyber. Yeah. But if you have any other thoughts. Yeah, it, it's... We did a bunch of work to try to figure out how do you, how do you get left of boom, right? Like how do you detect something that starts going bad before it blows up in your face, right? Before the really bad thing happens. And, and initially I was very skeptical about being able to do that in security, right? Because how do you detect a security problem or an incident before it happened? Because attacks are random. Right? The, the attacker tomorrow decides that you're a target. And I don't care whether you're JP Morgan Chase or you are Joe's butcher down the street, right? Like either one could be a, become a target tomorrow. And someone could decide that they're going to break in and, and try to steal data or, or create some kind of problem. So you just don't know. So how, how do I predict that? Like I could wake up tomorrow and decide that I don't know, I'm going to try to, to hack Alona's systems, right? Uh, and how would you have any sign of that and, and be able to go left of boom? I don't know. We can't solve that, right? That will still happen. However, there's probably certain things I will start doing. And if I were to try to hack into Alona's systems, well, I have to first understand what systems does she have? Well, I probably you have a phone. Okay, but, but what, what kind of phone? Do you have an Android or an iPhone? That depends on how, how, what I have to know to hack the system. 
So there's some reconnaissance happening there. And if you, Alona, when you're protecting yourself, well, if you have a way to detect those reconnaissance activities, you might be able to say, hang on a second, someone is, someone is looking at me here and they're trying to figure out what kind of phone I'm using. I got to be more careful. And then maybe you can put another security barrier in place that you wouldn't want to have otherwise because it's annoying that you always have two factors, but suddenly the risk goes up. I'm like, no, no, I'm willing to take that second factor whatever, for whatever I do. And so maybe a little bit of a constructed example, but if you take this and take it into the inside of threat world, into espionage, then this is daily, daily happenings, right? Like you look at your employees, you try to understand whether there is anything in their makeup, in their profile, we, we don't like using that word profile in, in the industry, but if you're looking at their profile, if something changes drastically that might hint that, ooh, wait a second, this person seems to have financial problems, problems at home, right? getting a divorce, maybe some death in the family, they're under a lot of stress, especially in the financial trouble, right? And suddenly they're not paying their bills on time. Someone's like, wait a second, if someone came in and starts talking to this person and tries to turn them against the company, they might actually be receptive to that because they need the money. And they, there is a way that someone can put, on, put a lever on them and, and really get to them, right? And this is not science fiction. This is not just what you see in the movies. This happens. And you can talk to larger organizations where these kinds of spy games are happening, right? And, and if you look at inside of threat cases that you can read about more and more, that's how they happen. And so if you catch someone falling onto that train of like, whoa, things are going wrong for that person, right? You can have like programs in the company to help. And it's actually been really, really nice. Like during the pandemic, I think companies have realized that there is something like that's called mental health, right? We're under a lot of stress. So let's help these individuals, these employees, right, with these programs. And, well, interesting, that was really focused on mental health, but, huh, could that be applied for also preventing security problems? And I think that's, that's where it gets interesting and, and so many things come together from psychology and, and, and just everything becomes one at some point, right? Yeah, it's, it's a much more integrative field than one meets the eye. And I mean, I think just going back to that conversation we were having around ethics, privacy, but the real security risks that are presented and, you know, can anonymization, you know, provide a layer to sort of surface these threats, these sort of left of boom threats to the right people at the right time is can AI um, as well be be leveraged here to actually enable some of the mm -hmm. privacy. I think just one of the things that has really become more and more apparent is just the interdisciplinary thinking around this. It's not just about threat analysis and what are the software solutions that we're building to respond, but rather looking at the whole picture and, and the role that people play. So I have a question now, which is around one of the things, again, a topic that keeps coming up is involving senior leadership in being security partners. And on the one hand, you would assume that the corporates, they understand the role of security, although given the number of breaches that are happening on a 
daily, weekly basis at the top levels isn't. And now you're in this role where you're supporting MSPs that are really working with the with the smaller guys. And uh, they also have the same kind of vulnerabilities. I mean, maybe not the same, but they also are, are exposed to security risks. So what advice do you have for our listeners on how to get buy-in from their executives around prioritizing security? And are you seeing similar things irrespective of the size of the company? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the last couple of years have unfortunately helped us getting the attention we need because pretty much everybody knows what's what ransomware is. And pretty much everybody knows someone that was fell victim to, to a ransomware attack. And it's it's no fun, right? It's it's real and you're losing data. So I, I think people are becoming aware that it's a problem, that they have to do something. If if you look in the smaller companies, again, they they have heard it from friends or it happened to them. And they're like, no, we need to be protected, especially ransomware. <laughs> There's maybe a word of caution there, right? A lot of vendors are trying to jump on that train and say, hey, we protect from ransomware but make sure it's really the right solution for you, right? Like not everybody needs a, I don't know, there, there's multiple ways to protect from ransomware and, and uh, make sure you're, you're educating yourself a little bit on what the right way is, or you have a trusted MSP that can help you with that. But then on the, on the large organization side, you generally have a board of directors and they are now becoming more nervous about help, like making sure that the company's secure and it generally starts with a very innocent question to the CEO. Well, how secure are we? What if we got were, were to be attacked tomorrow by something that spreads ransomware? Are we, are we good? And then the CEO is like, I don't know. Wait a second. I don't even have a CISO. I, can't even, I cannot even ask anyone. Let me ask the CTO, right? And then at some point, the board is like, okay, we need someone responsible for security. And then someone is elected as, as the person that should know security. And often it's like, well, that person doesn't have a security background. And then it's like, well, okay, now we're going to hire a CISO, right? That is actually responsible for it. And that puts the right processes and, and um, programs in place to A, report on the security and B, obviously do something about it. I think that's the first, that's, that's a key point, right? Like that in those companies, someone is responsible for security. And ideally, someone that's qualified or someone that has the authority and the budget to do something about it. And you can start slow, right? But, but someone needs to be responsible to set it all up because eventually it's the puck stops with the board. The board is responsible for if something happens, right? Uh, and so I think that is the other piece that's been helping us that the, we actually do see actions where executives of companies do get in trouble if something happens, right? Like, there is something that's called negligence that if, if a breach happens and it can be shown that they didn't do anything about it, there might be consequences to that now, right? And, and so being like, I think educating, but without just always drumming or, or beating the, the fear drum and, and trying to figure out, well, can we use security also as the carrot and not just as the stick? And there are things now where I feel like, you know, you can actually, you can do that, right? The simplest thing, the, the number one thing that every company should probably go and figure out right now is, do you understand 
what devices, what computers, what systems do you own and have live on your networks at any point in time? It seems to be a simple question. Of course I know. I have 10 employees. There's 10 laptops. You sure? You sure there's not another machine under the desk somewhere? And it starts with that, just visibility. And that is, it's not just a security thing, right? It's, it's also just an IT thing. Well, uh, are those configured, right? And are there licenses on there that we should know about that at some point Microsoft is going to come back and say, hey, you use 11 licenses, not 10. You got to pay us for that. So, so security becomes almost this service provider that can help with some of these questions, right? Like make security that department that can help with those things. Same for log management, right? It's, it's not just a security thing, but you can use log management for all kinds of other things. So can you in security, build your log management system and then offer it as a service to your application monitoring, to your network monitoring and so on that has different objectives, not just security. So I'm dancing a little bit around your question on how to get buy-in, <laughs> right? But, but I think if just calling attention to what's actually happening and making executives aware, hey, we are responsible for what we're doing. And I can guarantee... Um, if, if you if you're familiar with something like GDPR, which is the data the data governance law in Europe, they're very serious about that, and there is serious fines if, if you follow that, right? And it applies to U.S. companies that are collecting data of European citizens. So most of U.S. companies, we already as product companies, we have to comply with that. But I can guarantee something like that is going to become legislation here in the U.S. as well for U.S. citizens, right? We don't want to be left behind. So it, it, this is getting serious and the fines are, are no joke, right? So you, ha you have to buy in, otherwise you, you can't operate anymore. And it sounds like a common theme throughout this whole conversation has been around sort of empowering the security teams, empowering all the different levels within the security team and empowering them also be, being creative partners in exactly this process of, you know, security for security's sake, but security for also providing services and support to other business units. And security is really, at the end of the day, just good business, right? And and the yeah. cost in terms of brand, lost brand credibility is can be really massive. Mm -hmm. You are an avid Zen practitioner. I'm a, uh, I'm a aspiring, um, <laughs> aspiring meditator myself, and I'm curious how has meditation and a Zen approach had any influence on how you think about cybersecurity risks or how to handle threats. I don't know if it's fair to, that I would call myself an avid Zen practitioner. Um, I. I've dabbled in that for a long time and I have my, my phases of, of meditating every day. And then I don't meditate for a couple of months, but it's been over, over a decade. It's been a, it's been a steady companion and a, and a really, a reliable companion as well. I don't know that Zen has really influenced my, my thinking of cybersecurity. I think it has helped me in my daily routines and, and in my different work to stay balanced in some way, right? Especially in, in high pressure jobs where there's so much going on. I mean, you're on calls. I'm on calls, gosh, from, from 7.30 a.m. to 5 p.m. almost constantly, right? And there's a lot going on. And just being able to 
take a breath and sort of come back to the essence and sometimes distance myself from the 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 call or the the thing that happens and like you know what that's okay that's not me right it doesn't have to impact me i have a i have the power to believe my thoughts right we always say that you don't have to believe your thoughts and that's i think that's been really helpful for just in my career in my life to to be able to to step back and 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 have a, a different perspective on things and, or put things into perspective and 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 sometimes also empathize empathize with, with the other side right like if, if you're in, in a job it's it's easy to to point fingers and and get upset with with your coworkers or the other team or whatever it is but sometimes just being able to step into that as well and like well it's not just me we're all one we're, we're there's there's if we were not one like how would that even work a, a company specifically right if not every person played their role we wouldn't have a business so it's not just about you it's it's about everybody else and, and being able to take the perspective and be like you know what maybe I do have to slap their wrist a little bit because I'm upset with them and they should really do X based on my view of the world, but maybe there's also their side of the coin that, that I need to understand. I think those are a couple of things that have helped me. And again, sometimes I sit every day, sometimes I don't, and it's, it's perfectly fine. And that that's part of Zen as well, right? Zen is not just sitting on a cushion meditating, but it's, it's, a, it's an approach to life. I think, um, first of all, that makes me feel better about my, my own meditation <laughs> practice. But also, uh, I, I can really imagine having that balance center. I mean, cybersecurity is definitely a high stress field. Having that balance probably is is a superpower that you're able to bring <laughs> to uh, <laughs> to a lot of your your jobs. But it's also nice to understand that you don't have, you don't always have to have it, right? We are all humans. Like sometimes I have that balance, sometimes I don't, right? And that's perfectly <laughs> fine, okay. And I think that's maybe that's the key, right? It's like it's okay. It, we're humans, right? In the end, we're not machines, and so that all is part of our daily life. Absolutely. Rafi, thank you so much. This has just been a wonderful conversation and brought up a lot of of really interesting topics that aren't in my opinion being talked about in the cyber field that are really critical for how we think about this industry going forward so i would just like to say thank you so much for joining us my pleasure thanks for having me And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us on this episode of The Security Show, a podcast created and sponsored by Vicarious, the industry's first cloud-native vulnerability remediation solution. If you're enjoying what we're doing, please share this episode with a friend. Want to be a guest on a future episode? You can email us at marketing at vicarious.io. That's marketing at vicarious, V-I-C-A-R-I-U-S dot I-O. And if you enjoy the show, we would love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us rank higher in the charts so more people can find us. Yay for algorithms. You can also follow us on social media at Vicarious. That's V-I-C-A-R-I-U-S. Happy patching.